Welcome to today's St. Paul's Church of the Voyager podcast. I'm Pastor Rob Fiesler, and I am glad that you are listening today. Well, I, uh, I shared that video that was on Facebook uh, this week from another minister, and because I am a minister, you would be right to suspect that many of my friends on Facebook are also ministers. This week, my friends on Facebook who are in ministry filled my Facebook feed with uh, an article and comments about a Roman Catholic priest in Arizona who had resigned after it was discovered that he'd been performing baptisms incorrectly throughout his ministry career. Did anybody see this story? Yes. The Catholic Diocese of Phoenix found that the priest had been using the wrong words for 25 years. But I should say word because he had been off by just a single word. During baptisms, the priest used the phrase, we baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit instead of I baptize you. This mistake apparently invalidates the baptisms of thousands of people. In the Roman Catholic tradition, the priestly role is to be Christ in administering the sacraments. And so, according to the diocese, it is not the community, it is not we that baptize a person and incorporate them into the church of Christ. Rather, it is Christ and Christ alone who presides over all the sacraments. Therefore, it is Christ, singular, who baptizes. Because baptism is the sacrament that grants access to all other sacraments, an invalid baptism also invalidates later sacraments involving those who were baptized incorrectly. This means that the confirmations, marriages, and holy orders given to those who were baptized incorrectly are also invalid. As the diocese shared, what this means for you is, if your baptism was invalid and you've received other sacraments, you may need to repeat some or all of those sacraments again after you are validly baptized. Now, as a pastor, I just got going on this because I was thinking, what if somebody got married and doesn't want to be married anymore? (laughs) They weren't validly married. I'm sure there's a response to that. But boy, this is is what my brain starts doing, you know? Though he's no longer in the parish setting, the priest has said that he will now devote his energy and full-time ministry to help remedy his mistake and heal those that are affected. While Protestant Christians do not share the same sacramental theology as Roman Catholic Christians, I'm not sure that we should be too quick to judge this. Because I think the story does raise probably questions that have been on our minds. 
Questions about how people are really saved. I mean, are certain words or prayers that, are there certain words or prayers that need to be spoken by which we become partakers in God's enterprise of salvation? Is Jesus Christ the only way to salvation? Or is salvation possible for those of other faiths or none? Will God save only Christians? Has anyone pondered or been troubled by questions like these in their life? And I suspect that questions like these and, and some disappointing answers may actually lead people to step away from the church and away from faith altogether. It is not an unimportant question. And so this is our focus today in week eight of our nine-week series. Think again. Nine beliefs Christians should reconsider. And remember, we're reconsidering them. To, to think about them and find out where we are and if we're still comfortable being where we are. Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, together with Paul's words from Ephesians, offer us some entry points into these questions. Now, uh, a couple of people recorded these readings for me, uh, for me, but they were outside, and so the sound wasn't quite right. So I'm going to read these both uh, for you. This is John 3, 16 through 21. Some of you know the first verse very well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that, they may, that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. And then the second reading is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians, the 11th through 23rd verse. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you had heard this word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of his glory. And then Paul writes, I have heard of your faith, in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, 
I do not cease to give thanks to you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that with the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power? God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So there are three Christian views, all having their roots in Scripture, about the scope or extent of Jesus' saving work. These are the exclusivist view, the pluralist view, and the inclusivist view. So let's briefly outline each of these. For an exclusivist, Jesus is the only way to salvation. And only those who accept Jesus as Lord and Savior are recipients of salvation. Those who do not are excluded and indeed face eternal separation from God and punishment in hell. For this group, there are often specific words, phrases, scripture verses, and prayers by which someone actually obtains salvation in Christ. An exclusivist might also insist on adult baptism and say, well, if you were baptized as a child, it doesn't count. Or, or they might insist on full immersion baptism and say, well, if you were baptized with just a little sprinkle, it's not, not really baptism. John 3.18 certainly sounds exclusivist. Those who believe in him, Jesus, are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Ephesians 1.11 seems to support this view, and Paul writes, In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance. And, and note that Paul does not write there that everyone has obtained this inheritance. Still, John 3.21 seems a bit broader, including those who do what is true as ultimately coming to the light. In contrast, a pluralist says that there is no way that we can know who is saved and who is not, nor can we say even that Jesus is the only way to salvation. In fact, a, a pluralist would argue that it is downright dangerous to make exclusivist claims. 
I have heard uh, pluralist Christians cite John 3.17 as a proof text. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And, and then a pluralist usually would go on to point out that the language of John's gospel is very complex. And that John 3, if you read through it, you know, it just seems obtuse at times. In their book, If Grace is True, Philip Gulley and James Mulholland, both Quaker pastors, make the case for pluralism or universalism, saying that God will save every person. And one of many texts that they cite is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. God has exalted Jesus and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. I, I, you know, I just ran across something this morning where it should say, uh, every tongue gladly confess. The translators for, well, there's a suspicion about why they might have left it out, but the, they chose to leave out gladly when maybe they should not have. Uh, the book uh, includes an appendix, this If Grace is True, that includes other scriptures, including 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any, not one, should perish, but that all, should come to repentance. Now, you know, beyond just grace, a key issue for the pluralist is the notion of divine justice. That a God who is truly just and gracious could not summarily consign otherwise good people who are simply unable to profess faith in Jesus to eternal punishment. Such a punishment for somebody like, say, Mahatma Gandhi, how could that be fitting or just? Gandhi, by the way, was extremely attracted to Jesus, but he found it impossible to convert because of his experiences with those who called themselves Christians. I think his line was something like this, I would be a Christian were it not for the Christians. And this is not new, you know, don't, don't get into this idea that this is some liberal thing. Uh, two rather well-known medieval theologians, Peter Abelard and Nicholas of Cusa, uh, tended to have a more pluralist understanding of salvation. Unlike the pluralist, the inclusivist position affirms that Jesus is indeed the unique savior of the world. Not just one of many, but that his saving power is not limited to Christians, to the church, or to any particular words or prayers that we might need to utter in the correct way. 
And the Ephesians passage actually seems to fit the inclusivist position because Paul's letter is not focusing, as, as we tend to do, on the question of who is in and who's out. Paul, rather, is writing to the church in Ephesus to assure them and encourage them during a time of trial. And so as Paul's letter is directed towards these Ephesians to assure them that they have been marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. Now, I, Paul would certainly say that there is no salvation outside of Christ. But Paul also saw that the scope of salvation in, in Christ is, is broader and, and deeper than we can fathom. In addition to the passages I just shared from Philippians and 2 Peter that a pluralist might use, an inclusivist would point to 1 Timothy 4.10, where Paul writes, For to this end we toil and struggle, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of, say it with me, all people, especially those who believe. Isn't it a wonder that we do not proof text things like this? I prefer the inclusivist position because it takes Jesus seriously without the excessive arrogance of saying that we can capture the fullness of salvation within our doctrinal assertions, our, our church systems, or our sacramental rituals. In Jesus, the inclusivist asserts that the human situation has been irreversibly changed. And that Christians can hold fast to that conviction without going into condemnation. For me, that is the problem with the exclusivist position. It is too concerned with who is in and who is out. I'm not quite ready to adopt universalism because that leaves this question to me of human freedom, our ability to say no to God. Even so, Jesus himself repeatedly taught that the last day, the final judgment would be a day full of surprises, of astonishment, of reversals. In his most developed parable on the, on the judgment that he tells in Matthew 25, the parable of the sheep and the goats, Jesus reveals that both those who are lost and those who are saved are caught totally off guard. When did we see you hungry or thirsty? Friends, that parable says nothing about what we must believe. Nor does it really say who we must believe in. Rather, according to the parable, judgment is based solely upon 
the compassionate behavior, demonstrating the compassionate behavior that Jesus enacted and encouraged throughout his ministry. And if you did that not knowing that that's what Jesus wanted you to do, the suggestion of this parable is you will be known by Jesus. So I think we see pretty clearly in the scriptures that I've mentioned that within the Bible itself there is a tension between themes of God's universal grace and the world's alienation from God. Some Bible passages do seem to articulate limited salvation, but others tend towards universalism. Of course, the inclusivist is the middle ground, which explains why that's what I'm more attracted to. And so, as one writer says, faith requires a kind of letting go, a relinquishment of any pretense of control and an admission of radical ignorance. And I think that this is certainly true when it comes to the scope of salvation in Christ Jesus. Anybody that claims to know from, for certain isn't talking about the whole Bible. So the question for you and for me is not who gets in and who gets out, who's left out. The issue, who is Jesus Christ? And if you call him your savior, is it true that you are actually following him as your Lord? As Jesus says in Matthew 7, 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Grace asks a response of obedience. We are saved not by our works, but works proceed from grace when we truly understand it. And that's what Paul is doing in his letter to the Ephesians. He's encouraging faithfulness. He's encouraging discipleship. He's encouraging uh, discipleship, uh, not, not half-hearted uh, 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 commitment. I meant to say steadfastness. Uh, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis wrote the following. He said, is it not frightfully unfair that this new life in Christ should be confined to people who have heard of Christ and who have been able to believe in him? He then says, but the truth is God has not told us his arrangements for these people. We do know that no one can be saved except through Christ. But we do not know that only those who know him can be saved through him. That strikes me as the position of humility. And, and that from C.S. Lewis. Friends, you know, some people reject Christianity because they've been informed by Christians that conversion is a comment on the eternal destiny of non-Christians. It's not. Christianity has never been about condemning anybody else to hell. 
being Christian is making a statement about Jesus and then seeking to be faithful in reflecting that light that has shone upon us. For that light is the light of Jesus' own gracious gaze. That is the light we seek to reflect. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, (laughs) I'm painfully aware whenever I preach that some of what I've said is going to be imperfect, maybe all of it. (laughs) And yet, God, as we seek to be faithful in revealing your love, I pray that you would bless the ears of people who have heard it so that they do indeed hear the word that is yours. And I trust, God, that it is a grace grace-filled love, a a word, a loving word, a word that will lead us in the right way. So God, I, I ask that you would bless each one of us here and perhaps those beyond this wall, uh, these walls with a, a growing awareness that your love is indeed broader and wider than anything that we have known. God, I'm depending on that for myself because I think it is something that we can depend on. In Christ's name we pray, amen.